Ladies and gentlemen, a word of caution, if you will. The content of this episode of How to Be 40 is not for those who revel in dissension. To get the most from it, you'll need to neutralize your perspective. You must completely submerge any personal bias you have on race, religion, nationality, or sexuality. You'll need to consider yourself and others as simply part of humanity. Nothing more, nothing less. This alone will require an advanced level of maturity on your part. So buckle up. The term affirmative action made its first appearance in legislation in 1961 when the 35th president of the United States, Mr. John F. Kennedy, issued an executive order requiring government contractors to, quote, take affirmative action to ensure that applicants are employed and that employees are treated during employment without regard to their race, creed, color, or national origin, end quote. Such was the first of many policies that would be implemented at a macro and micro level across sport, education, deeper into the workforce, and into just about every facet of American society. That, of course, was later expanded to prevent unfair treatment based on other variables like sexual orientation. Similar practices are still put in place today, echoes of the civil rights movement more than a half century ago. Over the past 60 years, Hundreds of millions of dollars in scholarships have been awarded to people of a required race, creed, color, national origin, or sexual orientation. Many organizations have adopted programs that promote diversity, equity, and inclusion via public promotion or by creating jobs, positions of influence, and or authority within said organization to be held exclusively by a person of a specific trait like race, creed, color, national origin, or sexual orientation. As you know, we're constantly shown via various media outlets the perceived disparities or social injustices reported to us by distinguishing groups, separating people by race, creed, color, national origin, or sexual orientation. Hello, friends, and welcome to How to Be 40, my podcast that attempts to delineate what it means to transition from juvenile thinking and behavior to genuine maturity. I told you this was going to be an intense one, so stick with it. Since 2015, I've had the sincerely rewarding opportunity to work at fitness and CrossFit competitions throughout the nation, as you may or may not know. I've worked with amazingly talented and kind people from all walks of life. Christians, Jews, agnostics, black, white, brown, Americans, Mexicans, Canadians, Australians, gay, straight, whatever. A myriad of people, all phenomenal. However, I want to focus on a fitness competition in Austin I did a few months ago, at which I worked as an MC, which basically means I was the guy on the microphone relaying information to the audience about the event itself. I worked closely at that event with a man named Dewan, who held the title of head judge. Now, if you don't know much about the duties of a head judge at a fitness competition, he's basically the guy who coaches, guides, and coordinates the dozens and sometimes hundreds of stage judges, and each stage judge has the heavy responsibility of ensuring athletes 
are competing fairly and meeting required standards during the competition. In short, Dewan at this particular event holds on his shoulders the legitimacy of the entire competition, a two-day contest. And considering over a thousand people and more than two dozen companies were invested to one degree or another in the event, that was a colossal responsibility. Luckily for me and everyone else there, Dewan, who happens to be a black man, was more than capable of handling the immense responsibility of head judge. But hold on to that thought. I'll come back to that. Friends, welcome to part two of the Compassion series that kicked off in February of this year. Now, in that first episode, I defined what exactly compassion is. If you haven't listened to it, I'd encourage you to stop now and do so. You should also listen to the March episode where I analyze the concept of success. In the success podcast, I mentioned a point in the Gospel of Matthew, which is in the Bible, by the way, when Jesus teaches us that we should first commit to God and secondly commit to our, quote, neighbor. What I did not reveal in either of those two episodes is the parable that Jesus gave directly afterwards to drive the point home. In order to do that, I'm going to steal an audio section from a 1979 film called The Jesus Film Project. It's basically a movie that recreates particular scenes described in the Bible, and they just so happen to recreate the scene from Matthew aforementioned. Now, pay close attention to what Jesus says when he's asked, who is thy neighbor? I admit it's kind of cheesy, but you'll get the idea. What should we do? What do the scriptures say? How do you interpret them? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. You're right. Do this and you'll live. Who is my neighbor? Not those soldiers. Yes. What about Caesar? There was once a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when robbers attacked him, stripped him, beat him, leaving him half dead. It so happened that a priest came that way. When he saw the man, he walked by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite also came there, went over and looked at the man, and then walked by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was traveling on that road came across the man, and when he saw him, his heart was filled with pity. He went over to the man, poured oil and wine on his wounds and bandaged them. Then he put him on his own animal and took him to an inn, where he took care of him. The next day he gave the innkeeper two silver coins and he told him to look after the man. And when I come back, he said, I will pay you whatever else you spend on him. Which one of these three acted like a neighbor towards the man who was attacked by the robbers? The one who was kind to him. (laughs) You then do the same. Yes, again, I know that was a cheesy reenactment, but did you catch the important part? A young girl in the crowd, and by the way, this is documented in the Bible. They just, they just recreated what you could already read in Matthew. A young girl in the crowd, curious about who a, quote, neighbor is, innocently asks, what's the neighbor? In that story, be specific, Jesus. After all, if you're going to tell us that we need to treat another group, this neighbor person group, with the same care we do ourselves, we need to be really clear as to what defines a neighbor. So Jesus gives a parable to help us understand that. But he does much more than simply let us know who the neighbor is. He reveals how exactly to treat said neighbor. In part one of 
the Compassion Podcast, it was established that compassion itself wasn't shown unless action was taken to alleviate the suffering of another. Two parts, recognition and action. And what happens in the parable? It was the man who called himself to action that did the right thing. Pity, which the priest and the Levite who passed by must have felt, was not enough. It was the man who combined the recognition of suffering with action. It was the man who showed compassion who proved the hero of the story. But that's not all. Check, listen. By stopping to help the good Samaritan that we've heard so much of, he put himself in harm's way. His act of compassion put himself at risk. The road to Jericho was saturated with thieves and evil men, no doubt a motivator for the priest and the Levite to hurry past the injured man. Lastly, pay attention to this. This is important. Consider carefully who Jesus claims is thy neighbor. That was a very interesting question by the young girl in the audience because when she asks Jesus to define who thy neighbor is, she's asking Jesus to make a distinction, to draw a line between groups of people, to paint clearly who has the right to compassion and who doesn't get it. Did Jesus suggest that we carefully consider race, creed, color, national origin, or sexual orientation, or political viewpoint? Did he say, listen, guys, first you really need to contemplate if the person in need of help is part of some minority or majority group, or if they're rich or poor, or ponder sincerely on whether or not you've helped other people of a similar race, creed, color, national origin, or sexual orientation before, because after all, you don't want to give too much or too little help to one group. No, he didn't. He did not say that. He says, your duty, the second most important command in all that is important, is to take action to help the person who needs help with no other distinctions made, even if it means putting yourself at risk. It's going to seem like I'm taking a fork in the road here, but trust me, I'm not. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was arguably the most influential person of the civil rights movement. On April 3rd, 1968, he gave a speech that came to be called, I Have Been to the Mountaintop. In that 40-minute or so long speech, he talks about the exact same parable. Unfortunately, Dr. King would be murdered less than 24 hours later. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. Yeah, that's right, that's right. I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem. We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. The dark irony here is palpable. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the Baptist minister, who became the most influential spokesperson and leader in the civil rights movement in the middle of the 20th century, directly references the road to Jericho, the dangerous, villain-saturated road that Jesus used in a parable to paint a clear, undeniable picture of what lines we should and should not create between people. And in the time of Dr. King, helping the victim on the side of the Jericho Road and helping the African-American were the same thing because black people were oppressed at the time. And to help a black man on the proverbial side of the road was also putting the helper at risk, putting the assister 
at risk. And Dr. King knew that. And it was a truth that literally cost him his life. But it was a truth that Dr. King would not shy away from. A risk that he would not avoid. I am absolutely convinced that the majority of the people who initiated the concept of affirmative action did so with a sincere hope for justice. They pushed against a powerful machine to establish a new standard, one founded on equality and ethics. I believe that most people who make a valiant effort to help those being mistreated today are standing on a foundation of good. However, we have got to pay close attention and ensure we don't recreate the very problem those who came before us tried so hard to solve, who literally gave their lives for. We must not attempt to remove lines between groups of people by recreating lines between groups of people. Dr. Martin Luther King wasn't fighting for continued separation. He didn't say black people need a better water fountain than white men. Nor did he give his life to ensure white women wouldn't be allowed to sit down on buses. He wanted to eradicate delineation, not simply redraw the boundaries. When choosing a head judge for a fitness competition, the one who is professional, articulate, direct, and organized should be chosen. Race, gender, sexual orientation, or otherwise should be left out of the conversation, which is why I personally would want Dewan in that position every time. Jesus wanted us to help those in need to love without lines or labels. But here's the tricky part. It's going to be more difficult than ever before as we are bombarded on all sides by groups trying to illuminate our differences rather than eliminate them. And a commitment to this state of mind, loving without considering lines, could come at a cost. Sometimes aiding the one in need will make you vulnerable to attack. The person you are inspired to help may not be the, quote, ideal race, creed, color of national origin, sexual orientation, political stance, at least not according to the hordes hiding in the cliffs of the dangerous road you're taking. And you will face a very harsh truth that your assistance may put you in the crosshairs of misguided people. And at that moment, you and I will have to make a choice to help or to pass by. I'm Noah Dean. Thanks for listening. Now it doesn't matter now. It really doesn't matter what happens now. I left Atlanta this morning, and as we got started on the plane, there were six of us. The pilot said over the public address system, we are sorry for the delay. But we have Dr. Martin Luther King on the plane. And to be sure that all of the bags were checked, and to be sure that nothing would be wrong on the plane, we had to check out everything carefully. And we've had the plane protected and guarded all night. And then I got into Memphis. And some began to say the threats. I talk about 
the threats that were out. Uh, what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord.